From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, I'm Emilio San Pedro, and this is the Eurovision News Podcast. Media freedom in Russia, even before the attack on Ukraine, has been a topic of grave concern. Members of the press in Russia have been harassed, imprisoned, and attacked for years. Before the invasion of Ukraine, the EBU had a relationship with Russian state media and also operated with some flexibility to report on the opposition and stories that the state-run media did not cover. By the end of May 2022, however, Russian state broadcasters were formally suspended from the EBU and new strict laws were instituted to increase additional control over the foreign and domestic press in Russia. In this episode, we speak with Kate DePuri, EBU's Moscow bureau chief, to get a sense of how she and her team have had to navigate the current challenges of reporting from Russia. Kate has decades of experience in covering Russia and reporting and working as an editor from there for major news agencies, and she joined the EBU as its Moscow bureau chief in 2021. So, Kate, I know you know quite well because we work very closely together, but you've really had to change, haven't you, the entire remit of the Moscow office in some ways in the aftermath of what Putin describes as the special military operation. Yes, that's right. Of course, we did have the two main Russian state television uh, channels as EBU members, but they were suspended from the EBU, and that took effect from the end of May. So from that point, we got no more contributed content from them. We knew this was coming, so we prepared to cover the news from other sources. And we have a small team. We have three producers and two engineers, plus some freelancers. Uh, So we started to explore different sources for news, and they broke down into three main categories. The first is official sources, and that's the Kremlin, the Ministry of Defense, the Foreign Ministry, and they are surprisingly prolific, actually, and their output is pretty professional. So they offer a lot of live streams, and in the case of the Ministry of Defense, they offer very well-produced pictures of war machines. We also explored getting content from social media, which in Russia is a very rich seam of news. Uh, Many, both opposition and government sources are active on Telegram, and many have their own channels. So we, we explored social media as a very good resource for news content. The third source of content is our own production. So we've done a lot more self-coverage. You've done a lot more self-coverage, not only in in Moscow, but you've also had uh, uh, your team uh, embedded with the Russian uh, forces in Donbass as well. Yes, that's right. Those are Ministry of Defense press tours 
and they're undertaken within that framework and with the caveat that you will not be free to shoot what you like or to go where you like. However, it's definitely worth having an independent EBU perspective with your crew on the ground. For example, when the IAEA delegation came into the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, we were able to film that as EBU. And I think that makes it much more valuable content. And a lot of that um, footage that was shot, that content was extremely well used by our members. So it's clear uh, from what, sorry, so it's clear from that that uh, members feel they're being well served with this uh, material. I think that's true. And actually, an astonishing statistic that we dug up looking at the months since the Russian channels were suspended, is that the Bureau from those three main sources is now producing more stories per month than we were offering when we had all of the state channels output. So, you know, we are covering this huge story and we're producing more content for members. That's astounding. And how did you manage as a team to make that uh, change? It's quite a big change and, and a big ask. Well, it is. And of course, the, you know, the switch from processing to news gathering is actually for our staff been a very welcome step, if you like, because they're all good journalists and they have just stepped up and seen what news need to be covered and been extremely creative and hardworking in the way that they've been able to source coverage. It's basically allowing them to be the, the journalists that they are. Right. So they've been able to embrace that. But in a climate, one presumes that has been very challenging. Yes. I mean, of course, you know, one mustn't forget that the Russian government has severely restricted um, the production of independent news about the war, which every journalist and every outlet is supposed to call the special military operation, but which, in fact, many of our EBU members' correspondents are now outright calling a war. So the restrictions are there. We think they're mainly there for Russian-language domestic outlets, but it doesn't mean that we don't have to be super careful because our bureau are all Russian citizens. And so they, you know, our job is to keep them safe. We would never ask them to do anything they feel uncomfortable with. And they are very aware of how far they can go. The staff are very aware of how they can cover the news safely. So if we take the example of Vox Pops, we were not able to ask outright, what do you think about mobilization? But we were able to fold that question 
into conversations with people on the streets when we were asking about the annexation of the four occupied East Ukrainian territories. So it's I'm very much taking my cue from our producers and VJs on how we can cover the news safely. Because there are special concerns about their own situation. I mean, what happens to to journalists and outlets that the Russian government wants to repress is that they either close them down and there's a new law that says that can happen you know as as uh, in a day with a court order from the ministry of justice there is no longer any need for a court process but for individual journalists they can be labeled foreign agents which basically means that they're they are in controlled from kind of morning to night on where they are and what they're doing they have to report to the interior ministry on a weekly basis they have to submit all expenses and their basically their career is over as far as russia is concerned so it's a big uh, you know it's a big minefield for russian journalists covering this story and of course there are also sanctions like court cases and criminal charges brought against anybody that is in the state's eyes disrespecting the russian military or threatening the security of the russian state so there's a whole panoply of legal mechanisms for controlling free and independent journalism so that must weigh heavily on their minds no as they're trying to carry out their daily work i mean they're extremely professional they're very well aware of for the most part how far they can go we discuss everything from you know news that we're going to cover ourselves through to maybe some social media stories that they don't feel they can process but we then alert geneva to so it's very much a kind of case by case basis and always very carefully looked at now turning to the russian media landscape itself and how it's changed in this uh period how would you say the coverage in russia of the what they call the military operation in ukraine differs from what you see when you're outside of russia well outside russia it's called a war from the you know that's the main difference <laughs> from the start from the start the mainstream russian media coverage of the war of course is in lockstep with the kremlin so they they do not call it a war they call it a special military operation they do the the casualty figures that are reported are only those that the ministry of defense reports they do not cover the ukrainian 
side of the war at all in the way that the West and the Western media is seeing it. So, for example, something like the atrocities that were discovered in Butcher reported extensively in Western media. In the Russian media, these were labeled fake. And the, the destruction of Mariupol was the, the narrative around that was that the Russian forces had no option but to raise the city because the Azov battalion were in civilian and residential areas. So there is very much a tight propaganda hand on all of the Russian output. And literally, there are some stories like Butcher where you are, you know, the, the versions are as different as black and white. It's a complete reverse mirror image of the truth. There was a time before this war where it was always noted that in Russia, most people get their information from the TV news is a kind of very big, plays a very big role in that. Has that changed since then? Um, no, the the proportion of people getting their news from state TV uh, depends on their age group. So I think the, the uh, older you are, the more likely you are in Russia to get your news from state TV. Younger people in Russia do mainly get their news on social media and the internet. And actually, very interestingly, since mobilization, this has meant that in the latest poll taken by the Levada Center, that the group of young news consumers feel a lot more anxious about the conduct of the war than the older group because they presumably are learning more from telegram channels um, and they're not just getting the state TV version that the older proportion of the population are getting. Was the mobilization or the announcement that Russia would start drafting men into the military for this uh, uh, conflict, was that a big turning point in your view in Russia? I mean, it was. It was the big turning point. It was what the Kremlin really wanted to avoid um, because once you mobilize people from across Russia, then every ordinary family in every street is affected by the war. And prior to mobilization, there had been a complete disconnect in Russia. The war was something that was being fought you know, um, far away, it wasn't affecting them. Of course, people felt really uncomfortable because they understood that contrary to the Russian military doctrine, which does not allow for aggressive or invasive military action, but allows for defensive military action. So that's a big that was a big kind of no-no about this whole campaign. So many people felt uh, disturbed by that, but they were able to get on with their ordinary lives and 
although they pretty much thought about it for much of their day, clearly, you know, people were really preoccupied with it, but they were able to go about their ordinary lives. After mobilization, that was no longer possible because, quite frankly, the the streets, even of Moscow, no longer had the number of men in them that one saw before. So it was very clearly a watershed. So in other words, a lot of these men either had left or didn't want to be... I mean, it's hard to say. I certainly have spoken to one um, young man who didn't want to leave, but he didn't want to be drafted. And he basically had moved out of his home address and was living in an address that the draft papers would not be delivered to. So people had different ways of of avoiding the call-up. Some were called up and left. Others headed for the border. And other young men, or actually not so young because the draft is up to the age of 60, just laid low. In fact, there is a really fantastic story in one of the Russian websites called Media Zona, and they have got this diary going on with an IT specialist who has basically set up camp deep in the forest of the North Caucasus, which is a heavily forested area. And he's got, you know, solar panels to power his IT equipment. He's basically working remotely in a tent in the middle of the forest so that he doesn't get called up. So, you know, people are doing things, uh, they're avoiding the draft in different ways. Going to quite uh, yes. long <laughs> lengths, yes. Yes, yes. So what kind of an impact has all of this had, this negative reaction to the mobilization, all the challenges, uh, the sanctions that we haven't uh, really spoken about, but who have, which have been around for, for quite a long time now since the war started? What kind of impact has all of this had on President Putin's popularity and the support he enjoys, would you say? I know it's difficult to ascertain in Russia how that, uh, where that stands, but what would you, uh, what would be your kind of uh, analysis on that? I mean, it's different from, you know, whether you're talking about remoter parts of Russia where the standard of living is uh, pretty basic. Um, that the impact of sanctions are not felt greatly because, you know, people didn't go on holiday abroad and they didn't shop at Zara, etc. But for the for people living in the big urban centers, they certainly miss foreign brands. They very much miss going on holiday abroad. It's no longer possible to buy your, you know, nearest and dearest, the new iPad because Apple products are sanctioned. Apple has withdrawn from the Russian market. So um, 
it certainly has had an effect on Russia's urban class. There are also, you know, it's also only really the beginning of of how sanctions will be felt, so that uh, the military campaign apparently, reportedly, suffering from, you know, diminishing stocks of equipment needs spare parts and electronic parts from abroad. And these either are are not accessible or they're accessible through third parties and much more expensive. So, you know, a little bit further down the line, sanctions will tell in very critical areas of the economy. So, Sanctions are affecting the conduct of the war in terms of those, you know, the economic effect for equipping the the army. But um, domestically, further down the line, uh, you know, we we've seen big um, companies like VW withdrawing from the Russian market, and that means people losing their jobs. We will probably see more of that, and then you know the the Kremlin will need to dig deep into its sovereign wealth fund and compensate people for loss of of jobs and loss of income. It's very important for the Kremlin to bring this conflict to a close. But they won't do it unless they can do it in a way that allows them to save face. And there's no sign of what that looks like yet. Given the fact that it, we don't know how or when this will end and, and what impact all of these things will have on the state of play in Russia and, and President Putin and his government, what is it that keeps you and your team so motivated to continue delivering this material and and looking at new ways of covering this story? How do you stay positive and, and focused on that? I mean, Emilio, this is the story that of a lifetime for any journalist. You know, it it may not be easy to cover, but it is the big story not just for me with you know many years of covering russia under my belt but of course for russian journalists it's really close to them and they care deeply about covering the story because it's their future and their children's future and of course the it's really important for them to cover it according to the psm standards that we follow and I think that for, for people working in the EBU Moscow office, this story has given them the chance to, to work according to the journalistic standards that they really want to work to. So that's, that's really motivating. So that's the answer to your question, I think. You know, it's a big story. And for any journalist, you'd be crazy not to want to cover it. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. And I have to say on on behalf of all of us here in Geneva, and 
I think I speak for all of our members when I say we really can't thank you and your colleagues enough for all that you're doing to help keep us informed. Thanks, Emilio. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And it's great to be able to explain how we do things at EBU Moscow. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling a friend about us. Thank you.